episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. You have an investing style, and TD Ameritrade has a mobile app to match it. Check out TD Ameritrade Mobile and Think or Swim Mobile to find the one that's right for you. Member SIPC. Also, thanks to Audible for supporting Motley Fool Answers. For a limited time, get three months of Audible for $6.95 a month. That's $6.95, by the way, not $695. (laughs) Choose one audiobook and two Audible originals for free. Visit audible.com slash fool or text fool to 500-500. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp. Hello, Allison Southwick. He's a personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. In today's episode, we're going to learn all about the history of China and what that means for you as investors. It's going to be fascinating. I'll also have the results of the Investor Development Program Pitch Off. We never really came up with a name. Pitch Off is good. Okay. Like all right. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Oh, I got a few things for you. Three things? Three things, perhaps, with a bonus something or other. Anyways, number one, why does the market keep going up? So, I might have said once or twice. <laughs> this is the awfulizer. <laughs> that the market's a little overvalued. Uh, so, Mark Holbert came out with an article recently on Market Watch, and the title is The US market is less overvalued now, but doesn't make stocks buy. So, he looked at the valuation of the market on six different metrics. And it's still like on average, it is more expensive than 90% of the other instances of the market. So it's still pricey, but it still keeps going up. Why is that? Well, there's an interesting take by Jared Dillon. Dillion? Dillion? Sorry, Jared, if I'm not getting your name right. Anyways, it was on Bloomberg. And the headline of this article is Stocks are soaring because supplies are limited, right? The stock market is a supply and demand marketplace. And he points out that the number of publicly traded companies has dropped by half in 20 years, from 7,000 companies to 3,500 companies, and a lot more corporate buybacks. So when you have all this money chasing fewer number of stocks, and the companies themselves are buying them, that might be why the market keeps going up. It's good as a theory as any, Sounds as far good. as I'm concerned. All right, number two, the rise, sorta, of the four-day work week. So I was sitting around watching the news with my wife. There was something on the news about this company. Basically, they noticed on Friday, especially Friday afternoons after lunch, people are just kind of hanging around, (laughs) not really working that hard. So they said, how about this? We give you the option of working 10-hour days for four days a week, and then you get three-day weekends. They gave it a try. Productivity increased by almost 20%. Wow. I couldn't remember the name of the company. Can't remember even what news station published this, but, <laughs> but it's one hundred percent true. It's true, and but accurate. thankfully NPR came to the rescue because they came out with another article oh. about another company. And the headline of this article is: Four-day work week boosted workers' productivity by forty percent. Microsoft Japan says so. Microsoft oh. tried this experiment in Japan. Uh, just four-day work week productivity soared. Not only that, their electricity costs dropped twenty-three percent. Their paper printing costs drop because there are a few days of people in there just paper uh, printing things. They also figured that because there's a shorter work week, we have to cut down on the length of meetings. So you couldn't have a meeting longer than 30 minutes. So kind of time boxed those. Um, so I thought that was actually pretty interesting, especially in light of our previous episode with the financial independence guys. When I've looked at the FIRE movement, financial independence retire early, so many people join the movement because their jobs are inflexible and they want more time off. If you see this increasing use of four-day work weeks, I think that would scratch that itch for a lot of people. So I hope it catches on. Uh, and number three, 
who has the most student debt? Well, Fidelity Investments has an answer. So they released a report with data from its student loan debt tool, which allows people basically to aggregate all the loans and sort of come up with some solutions. And they broke out student debt by industry. So the people with the most debt, average loan balance of $75,000, private health care, and social assistance. Next group is higher education at 60000 So that's a lot of money, especially if you're going into higher education and you're just becoming like a professor or something like that. The people with the least amount of debt, still pretty high, $42,000, are people who work in retail. So on the one hand, I guess that's good, because those are also people who are not making so much money. But it also makes me very sad to think that people want $42,000 into debt to get a retail job. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, And the other thing that I thought was even scary about it, they broke it out by generation. So most of the people with debt, 71%, are millennials. Uh, the average millennial has 45000 in debt. But Gen X, here we go, fifty-five thousand dollars in debt, and the Boomers, who count for five percent of the people with debt, have fifty-six thousand dollars in debt, and their interest rate is almost a percentage point higher than what everyone else is paying. It's going to be very tough to retire when you when you still owe fifty-six thousand wow. dollars in student loans. I assume most of that is they took it on for their kids or grandkids, but some people do go back graduate to graduate degree, something, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And then finally, just a couple of birthday shout-outs. So if you listen to the show, you know I turned 50 this year. I'm just going to acknowledge a couple of other people or entities or things that reached 50. Number one, happy birthday to the Interconnected Network, otherwise known as the Internet. And this comes from a great Fast Company article written by Mark Sullivan that was pu- published on October 29th. He said, 50 years ago today, the Internet was born in room 3420 of UCLA. So one guy, one night on October 20th, sent a message to another guy at Stanford, and that was the first time the internet worked. And then the other happy birthday is to Sesame Street, which aired its first episode on November 10th, 1969. My mom says, I watched it, and it came out just a few months after I was born, but I taught myself how to read from Sesame Street. So thanks, Sesame Street. And that Allison is what's up. Thanks to TD Ameritrade for supporting Motley Fool Answers. You've done a ton of research on a trade, but you can't decide if you want to go through with it. TD Ameritrade's Trade Desk might be the secret to figuring it all out. Just go to tdameritrade.com slash trade desk to see how they can help gut check your trades. Member SIPC. China, China. It's all anyone can talk about these days. Am I right? You are so right. I'm so right. And so that's why today we have Ben Rod joining us. He's an analyst with The Motley Fool. Ben, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you gave a talk at Fool Fest, which is our annual big member get-together. And it was really an interesting dive into investing in China, not just about the opportunities, but also about how, uh, because of the culture and prevailing mindset in China, it's just so different than the U.S. when it comes to business. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to ask you to come on and talk a bit about the history of China, uh, their philosophy of business, and how outside investors should be approaching investing in China. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, I mean, when you talk about the history of China, it's 4,000 years, so it's a lot of There's a lot to unpack. (laughs) So let's start at the beginning. Right. So 4,000 years ago. Yeah. But I think when you look at what's going on today with the trade war, I think history explains a lot. At least 50% of what's going on right now, I think, can be explained just by looking at the history. Um, so, when you look at the history, um, 
you find out that a lot of the assumptions that we have, for example, we say China is a rising power. If you look at it from their point of view, um, they were the existing power for millennia, for centuries upon centuries. Even up until like the early 19th century, they were the dominant economic power. So from their point of view, they're not really a rising power as much as they are a returning power. Uh, when you listen to Xi Jinping, he often says that this is sort of a rejuvenation of China. So they see themselves as going back to a place where they were, um, they considered themselves to be sort of the center of the world in many ways. Uh, the, the Chinese word for China, Chongguo, means middle kingdom. And according to this mindset, they are the middle of the world. I'm not saying that they have this mindset today, but there's uh, remnants of that even today. So we have to uh, be aware that you know we may consider themselves to be a rising power. They consider themselves more to be a returning power. Um, that's one area where there's kind of a disagreement. You know, there's a famous saying that uh, history is kind of the memory of states, right? And we use that concept, I think, in personal relations as well. You know, we say there's history between us, for example, between uh, two people, and. Um, China's view of its own history and its relations with the outside world, is, it can be very different from how we view that history. From the point of view of the U.S., we remember China the last 40 years. We see China rising, getting more and more powerful economically and militarily. From their point of view, they go back at least two centuries when they look at um, what they consider their history. Um, and if you look at those two centuries, you'll, you'll find that uh, beginning around the middle of the 19th century to around to 1946 when they were reunified. It's what they considered the century of humiliation. So it's a period when, uh, from their point of view, China was weakened, the West came in, it was Western colonialism, there were the opium wars, uh, they had to cede Hong Kong Island to the British. Then after that followed a time of extreme anarchy and extreme bloodshed. I mean, you're talking about tens of millions of people dying. So that memory is still fresh in the minds of the Chinese. And they see this current period as sort of uh, their effort to rejuvenate themselves from that period. Is it the sense of the outside world like doesn't understand just how incredibly powerful we are, and so we're flexing a little bit. And because, well, I think like prior to the Olympics, remember prior to the the Beijing Olympics, and they had that massive opening ceremony. That just felt like a great big like, look at us, here we are. <laughs> we're massive. We're many. We're powerful. We can do everything coordinated and better than you, and perfect. It was and like I a think coming out party. It was amazing, thing, like yeah. a coming out party. And I remember like everyone and everyone who watched those opening ceremonies was just like. Oh, they took it to the next level. Like, yeah. this is no joke. Like, we are now all sitting up and listening a bit more. As opposed to, I think in my childhood, China was just like the country with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's all we knew. They're communists. They have a lot of people. Don't worry about it. Go back to playing your Coleco and Atari. Right. And where, and, and what was the old saying? you got to eat your food because there are starving children in... There are starving children in China. That's right. right. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you even look at like World, World War II, right? So I, I love reading about World War II. And China came out as one of the, the top five powers. Mm-hmm. But while they're fighting... They're also going through a civil war. Yeah, There was so much turmoil going on in China through really most of the 20th century. Yeah. And, I mean, when you look at that history, you know, we think of Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong, you know, responsible for tens of millions of people being killed. But uh, he's actually a very 
respected figure in China. One of the reasons that he's so respected is because whatever ills he may have caused afterwards, he's the one who reunified China. And if you look at Chinese history, you see this constant ebb and flow between periods of consolidation where this single powerful figure uh, unifies the country. And then, you know, after a while, you know, a couple of centuries pass and then his idiot descendants kind of, you know, let things fall away. And you have a period of disintegration and anarchy where no central government exists and different parts are fighting each other. And there's a period of just extreme bloodshed and anarchy. And then you have somebody coming along again and unifying um, the country again. So authoritarianism, a strong central government in the Chinese mind is associated with periods of prosperity. It's very different from the U.S. where we kind of associate a weak government, a government sort of that gives freedom to its people as being the ideal. In the Chinese mind, those kind of situations where the central government is weak has almost always led to anarchy and bloodshed. So uh, when we look at Xi Jinping, when we see him consolidating power uh, or Mao Zedong, we should keep that in mind because in the Chinese mind, a strong central government is necessary for any kind of prosperity. All right, before we move on uh, to talk about how this history and the culture and the mindset influences business and investing, is there anything else you want to add? I, th- I mean, we, it is 4,000 years of history we have to cover here. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the, la- the final thought I want to sort of um, end with before we move on to the next section is that China is really a civilization. It's not just a culture, it's a civilization. And the difference between the U.S. Um, and China is not just a difference of culture, but it's a difference of civilization. And it goes into things as fundamental as how we think about truth or good and evil, right? Um, in Western civilization, we've been very heavily influenced by Christianity. So we believe in an absolute truth that's out there that's universally applicable, So if it's true here, it's true in China. So when we have something like human rights, we believe that human rights are valid. It's a fundamental truth. And it should apply in China as it applies in the U.S. or anywhere else. As long as you're human, it applies. In China, it's very different. In China, you have the symbol of yin and yang. So yin and yang, you have, you know, this black side and the white side, and then a white dot on the black side and a black dot on the white side. It shows the union of opposites. There's not a single truth Uh, in the Chinese mindset. There's multiple truths as kind of, they may be opposite, they may be contradictory, but they coexist. Um, And in the end, the lesson is that though these two sides are opposite, they are in fact the same. It's completely contradictory. um, And it's difficult, I think, for the Western mind to understand. But it's very fundamental to how the Chinese view themselves, how they view Uh, their philosophy of life. Um, In the West, for example, we think that there's a pretty fundamental difference between government and civil society. So there's a separation between those two. In China, on the other hand, those two kind of mix. Those are opposites in a way, but they kind of meld together. So, you know, in the West, a lot of our political thought uh, revolves around the question of how much should government actually uh, interfere into civil society. In China, on the other hand, those two kind of just meld. The separating line between government and civil society is really not there. So when we think about something like Huawei or any of these big Chinese companies that we often say, well, there's all of these companies are uh, controlled by the government. Uh, 
that's in a sense that's true, um, but it's also in a way inevitable for China because there isn't that dividing line between uh, civil society and government. They just kind of meld together in a very in a way that I think is kind of weird for um, for Americans uh, to understand. So those kind of things I think are are, are difficult to understand. But it's not something that's going to be um, washed away by Western influence. Uh, th- those kind of differences will always be there. And so now in Hong Kong, we're seeing this conflict of Western versus Chinese philosophies around authoritarian and uh, democracy. We're seeing it kind of play out, unfortunately, violently here. The conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Hong Kong is something that you know I've been thinking about for a while, and um, I think. History is very important here, too. Um, From the Chinese perspective, what does Hong Kong represent? Uh, We often say Hong Kong is a financial center, which is true. You know, they they get like 67% of their uh, FDI, their foreign direct investment, through Hong Kong. So it's a major financial center for China. But Hong Kong is actually much more than just a financial center. In the Chinese mindset, Hong Kong is the first piece of territory that was taken by the West in in the 19th century. So when you look at that period, right around 1842, it was the Opium Wars, and after the Opium Wars, the British uh, took over what is now Hong Kong Island. Um, That was, for them, when they think about it, um, what was going on at the time is is very interesting because there's parallels with the current um, period. Um, And just like there's a trade war now at that time, there was a trade war between uh, the British and the Chinese. The Chinese historically have always had a big trade surplus with the rest of the world. They were huge exporters of porcelain, of silk, all kinds of things that the West wanted. And on the other hand, they really cared for nothing that the West would produce. So consequently, they had a huge trade surplus. They stocked up silver. And the rest of the world, British, the British uh, foremost, um, considered this to be extremely unfair. So um, the one thing that they could find that the Chinese would buy to balance this trade or to lessen this trade surplus was uh, opium. Mm. So, you know, they sold the Chinese opium. The Chinese, of course, protested. They thought it was bad for the society, which is true. Um, they tried to crack down. The British said, no, you have to buy the opium. There's this trade surplus. As a result, um, it led to the opium wars and they lost Hong Kong. So that's the history behind um, the loss of Hong Kong. So they see Hong Kong as this piece of territory that the West took, and then the people in Hong Kong, the West infected with Western values. And when they handed this piece of territory over to the Chinese in 1997, it was handed back as a territory where um, the people may have looked Chinese, but they were in fact Western. Uh, They were infected with what, what the Chinese would consider Western values. And the conflict today, from their perspective, is directly a result of Western imperialism. So if they would actually crack down uh, in Hong Kong, which I consider to be a distinct possibility, um, they would not feel very much in the way of moral qualms about cracking down. For them, they are merely cracking down on a wrong that was committed by the West. So it's a very, very different view of uh, what Hong Kong represents. For us, Hong Kong is, you know, a place where um, we see 
Western values um, existing uh, in in Asia, and we see it as something that has to be preserved. For them, it's a consequence of Western imperialism, and it's a wrong that they have to um, correct. Got to root that out. What are the chances of Western ideals infecting the rest of China? Is that not going to happen? That's never going to happen. So when it comes to the financial system, when it comes to just the practical aspect of how people raise capital, Mm -hmm. how business is conducted, and even some legal aspects, I think the Chinese are slowly moving toward uh, Western models. Um, For example, if you look at like the stock market, the Chinese would love for Shanghai and Shenzhen to be financial centers on par with Hong Kong. Um, And one of the things you saw was like what they call stock connect systems, where um, you can buy mainland A shares from Hong Kong and vice versa. And then you saw stock connects between Shanghai and London and Shanghai and Tokyo. So that you see this gradual effort to sort of integrate the financial system in China with the rest of the world. Um, And I think that's something that will continue. Like uh, um, permits have been issued to UBS. So previously, if you wanted to set up business in China, you had to set up a joint venture. And you had to have a Chinese partner who was the majority controlling partner. And now they're allowing some companies to actually control their joint ventures. UBS was, I believe, the first one. Uh, PayPal was recently given a permit to open up a payments business in China. I think you'll see those kind of moves uh, accelerate, if only for selfish reasons, because now their economy is uh, sort of in a difficult uh, position. So they want to affect, uh, they want to attract Western capital as much as possible. Um, You see bankruptcy laws. There was a recent article in the Wall Street Journal about how bankruptcy laws are being eased. They're adopting more of a Western model. Um, So in terms of the functionality of the financial system, I think you'll see them adopting more of the Western model. The thing about China that we have to understand is it is very top-down directed, and changes come slowly. So oftentimes we complain about how the Chinese are not adopting our models. I think they will adopt them, but they'll adopt them in a controlled fashion. Um, And even something as foreign as democracy, I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility that they will adopt some democratic forms of government in the next 50 years. Um, And you see this protest in Hong Kong, and you say, well, you know, they're cracking down on democracy, which is true. Um, But what they're really cracking down on is the imposition of democracy through riots that they're completely against. It's one thing to allow democracy over a period of decades through a controlled method of reform. It's quite another to go for democracy in response to pressure from riots. Because China we think of as just this monolithic country, top-down control. But China has many, many moving parts. And if you look at places like Xinjiang, places like Mongolia, places like Tibet, Those are areas where there's a real risk of separatism. If you let one of those uh, pieces fall apart, um, so if you let Hong Kong become nominally independent uh, as a result of riots, then you have to ask yourself, if you're the Chinese Communist Party, um, what kind of message will that send in a place like Xinjiang or Tibet? Is the message that we want to send to these places that if you riot, if you protest, then we're going to give in and you can have your own 
democratic form of government? Is that the message we want to send? So that's something that we have to think about. Um, and change, I believe, will come. It almost has to come. But I think we have to content ourselves with the fact that change is going to happen over a period of many, many years and not immediately as we would wish. And if you look at China over the last 30, 40 years, very, very different from what it was back in the 1970s. I mean, back in the 1970s, if just a regular Chinese person, you couldn't really move around from your whatever city or province you were in. You, you, were, you had to get authorization just to move. Wow. Um, and now it's, it's, I mean, there are still some restric- restrictions, but, but it's nowhere near as restrictive as it was before. Yeah. One thing that I find interesting about China is that it is this top-down country, nominally communist, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of capitalism going on. I've been there. I've seen it go on. And the country has tens of thousands of millionaires, multimillionaires, and many billionaires. So how do they balance those two things? Because, I mean, I think one of the fundamental ideas of communism is that we're all in this together and no one should prosper more than other people. Yet you have people who are obviously becoming very wealthy due to capitalism. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great question. It goes back really to how I talked about the yin and the yang. So you have opposites colliding, but also coinciding. Um, So you have two opposites. You have communism and you have capitalism. And when you ask the Chinese, they will say we're both communist, but we're also, we're also capitalist. And that may sound like a contradiction because I think in the West we have a need to sort of classify something. Right? It's a very scientific mindset. So if you're, if you're communist, you can't be capitalist. If you're capitalist, you can't be communist. So when we look at China, I would say back in like the early 2000s, a lot of people would say they're obviously not communists. I mean, look at what they're doing. They're obviously capitalists, right? Nowadays, I think you hear more people saying they're, well, maybe they're actually communists and not capitalists. The Chinese will say we're both. They're opposites, but the opposites can coexist. Mao once called China um, a democratic dictatorship. <laughs> um, and that's an obvious contradiction. Right. But in the Chinese mind, they're like, cool. It's yeah. possible. Oh, okay. it, it, it's possible. Um, so that's very difficult for us to understand, but um, that is really the way that they think. They really believe that they are both uh, communist and capitalist, and in a way they believe that the one actually aids the other. So thank you. This has been incredibly fascinating. Sure. Uh, what is sort of your closing advice or takeaway for our listeners as investors or just as people here outside of China trying to maybe try to make sense of it? I think in the short term, um, investors should be ready for pretty extreme volatility. I think that's a pretty high probability, a fairly high probability scenario that something will happen in Hong Kong. Um, I would put it at above 50%. So I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's a much higher probability than what I believe the market gives uh, it credit for. So be prepared for volatility. In the U.S. markets or just in Chinese companies? I would say globally. Chinese globally. Okay. I would say globally. I mean, if there is a crackdown in Hong Kong, um, I would assume that that would create a huge amount of turbulence in, in world markets, just not just Hong Kong markets. So that is a distinct possibility. At the same time, even if there is a crackdown, um, you know, after Tiananmen Square, which was obviously a great tragedy in 1989 when the Chinese cracked down on um, protests in Tiananmen Square. Um, 
a lot of people thought that the Chinese would end their reforms. They would go back to this communist command uh, economy. Um, and they were proven wrong. Actually, the Chinese accelerated their reforms. They adopted, they opened up their economy after. And I think something similar will happen uh, if they would do something in Hong Kong, if only for selfish reasons, because obviously capital will flee if something like that happens. To attract capital back, I think they would have to adopt more Western forms of governance, more Western forms of financial reporting. Um, so the long-term vision, I think, for both sides, for the U.S. and China, um, I, th- I would say it's positive. Um, there is a trade war going on, and that's a whole other subject. Um, it's related to what we're talking about, what we talked before. But, um, yeah, even with the trade war, I would say the, the, the sort of vision that I have for the next uh, decades, next few decades, is overwhelmingly uh, positive. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. Thank sure. you so much for joining us. This has been Thank great. You. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Audible for supporting Motley Fool Answers. The holidays are right around the corner when it's time to travel on long flights and car rides to see Grandma. And what are you going to put in your ears when you're caught up on all your podcasts? Well, think about giving yourself the gift of listening with an Audible membership. For a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for $6.95 a month at audible.com fool or text fool to 500-500. Access an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, motivation, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, and more. And with the Audible app, you can listen anytime, anywhere, and on any device. Mobile, Alexa-enabled, Bluetooth, and more. Bro, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? Oh, I most certainly do. You know how I like Jack Bogle, so I'm going to recommend the little book of Common Sense Investing. The 10th Anniversary Edition is only available in audiobook form on audible.com. <gasps> Ooh, yeah. nice. So, for a limited time, get three months of Audible for $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. Each month, choose one audiobook plus two Audible originals for free. Visit audible.com slash fool or text fool to 500-500. Give yourself the gift of listening. Play the game, play the game, play the game, play the game. So a few weeks ago, the graduates of the Investor Development Program joined us to talk about foolish investing principles and to pitch a stock. It got a little competitive. And you chose the victor, dear listeners. So just to remind you, Ari Hughes pitched us on Etsy, the online marketplace for creators of unique things. TJ Piggott pitched Wingstop, a restaurant that you stop at for Get wings. wings. <laughs> Maria Gallagher, I shouldn't make fun of him. Maria Gallagher had Planet Fitness and she talked about the low-cost gym that doesn't judge. And Tom King pitched us Constellation Software, a Canadian software company that is a master of acquisitions. So, bro, did you have a bro and Rick, actually both of you did either of you have a favorite? So, I I chose TJ just because I love wings and I've never heard I've I've got to go try it. So, Since when do you love wings? I We've do. never talked about this. I do. I love wings. What about Bonchon? Do you love Bonchon wings? There's the spicy ones, right? I mean, some are spicy, so the oh, soy okay. is not soy garlic's not spicy. Oh, then yes, I like them. I'm gonna order some banchan. So you would have gone with wi- the wing stop, yeah, just because you like wings. It's the one. It's the product that appealed to me the most. Yeah, I like wings, but I don't go out of my way for them. That's just what you order when you're at the bar watching a game or something like that. Yeah, pretty much. Well, that's what most most <laughs> I, of our people thought too. But Rick, what was your what was your pick if you had to go with one? I'm kind of a fan of Etsy, so I probably would have gone there. But um, yeah, there's. Yeah. <laughs> Not a real strong conviction, I guess. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I mean, I do own Etsy. 
I, I yeah. think that's the only one of those I've owned. That you actually I, own. Buck was talking forever about the Constellations one the other day. I was like, what are you that talking That one's about? like the new hotness. Everyone's yeah. talking about Constellation software. Someone else Apparently just mentioned the, it in another meeting, too. He's like the hottest CEO that no one's ever heard of. He looks like Gandalf like with a big physically? beard. physically? Yeah. Oh, Gandalf but, isn't hot. No, no, like the hottest, like <laughs> sure uh, his successful CEO. Not hot like... Mrs. Gandalf. Not, not like hot like you. Like sort of hot. <laughs> That stays Not in the hot show. Hot. That stays in the show, by the way. I don't think so. Uh, well, it turns out that it was a close race. After a few days of voting, we actually had a three-way tie. But one pulled ahead, and the winner was Maria Gallagher with Planet Fitness. Yay! She got 36.5% of the vote. Ari with Etsy came in second with 28.8%, and Tom with Constellation Software, 26.8%. So it was still a tight race for those three companies. And then, of course, poor TJ. Unfortunately, he didn't make many tummies rumble, and Wingstop came in last with 7.7%. I'm a contrarian, that's all I'm going to (laughs) say. You would also admit that you're not really an investor, like individual stocks. Right, yeah, I would say maybe 15% of my all my portfolios in individual stocks. Yeah, it's not like something you like. Yeah. You're not going to go out and right. hop on this. I rely on the fine analysts at the Motley Fool to pick my stocks for me. Well, there you go. So we asked listeners why they voted the way they did, and Maria won a lot of votes for her detailed presentation, and people liked Planet uh, Fitness's uh, subscription business model. Tom took on some votes because he had the best accent, and another <laughs> vote just because he's from South Africa. So that's good. Uh, a lot of you had the recession on your mind and were thinking about what people would stop paying for when they had less disposable income. And so w- wings <laughs> fell under that category, I guess, and, and buying things on Etsy. We also uh, were, were pretty just upfront about asking you guys who answered the survey to say nice things about us, and some of you did. So some of the things you wrote were, you know you're a fool when your heart flutters every time the market corrects and you've got dry powder and a watch list. Nice. Thanks for helping me build my nest egg, fools. Uh, another person wrote, I love your podcast. I find it the most entertaining out of all of the Motley Fool podcasts. You know that's right. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. The simple and so nice Motley Fool has changed my life. Thank you. That is great to hear. Mm. Hopefully for the better. For my son's first birthday, I set up a custodial <laughs> account for him. Yes, of course, for the better. And I added a stock or two every quarter. His Christmas present from Dad last year was Apple stock at about 150 bucks. To say it's done well is an understatement. You know what I love is that... Some people who are just now starting to invest are like, "Oh, I shouldn't bother investing in Apple. Like it's already, yeah. it's already run its course." As long as I've been at the Motley Fool for almost ten years now, people have been saying like, "Oh, Apple's already. Sorry, like there's no point in investing in it now." But that's not true. You can still buy these companies now, and be successful. Yay! Yay! Winners keep on winning, as David likes winners, to say. Winners just let your let your winners. Run. All right. Working for, and also someone wrote, working for a nonprofit, I don't make much money, meaning I only have so many dollars to put toward retirement, et cetera. The Motley Fool and Motley Fool Answers has been so helpful in helping me stretch these dollars. Thank you. I also looked at my 403B because of you, and I'm happy to say my employer gives us a very nice low fee single option. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. Yay. Hey, who wants a disclaimer? As always, The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about today. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard on this show. Well, that's the show! It's edited yin-yangly by Rick Engdahl. (laughs) Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.